Hi, everybody, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly. I'm George, and this is the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is my friend Sloane Kazem. How's it going, Sloane? It's going pretty good. Sloane, every now and then, I like to have a friend of mine on who I know for a fact is not super into horror, Mm. because I like to find out what works for them when they find a horror movie that they like. I'm curious if there was, like, something, a movie that you saw that made you shy away from the genre, or if there's, like, a specific memory that made you be like, no, horror is not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's no specific memory. It's just, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I know you said you wanted me to talk a bit about it. And I think for me, it's just, like, a lot of what I grew up thinking horror was, was like just slasher films, just jump scares, just uh, like Nightmare on Elm Street, like Friday the 13th. Like those are some of like the big name horror movies that people are just constantly talking about as like the pinnacle of horror, whether or not it's actually the best horror. Right, just because it has that nostalgia spot for so many That nostalgia spot, that just, like, Mm quintessential-ness. I think some of that also might have to do with the fact that they were the originator of so many tropes, but now at this point, for someone who's going back and who's been exposed to those tropes so much it's not as impressive as it maybe once was where you're it's some of these tricks are a little bit old hat exactly and it's some of those tropes too that i just uh like if i know a movie is going to play on them i'm just automatically not interested Mm -hmm. so like a lot of these violent against women like some of the ableism that has just been recycled in many horror films just put a bit of a bad taste for the genre in my mouth and kept me from really embedding myself and really enjoying the genre as a whole and exploring it as much as I guess I have been a little bit more recently. Sure, it's very much, I think, the its status as kind of a counterculture lends itself to having a little bit of, like, edgelordism. And yeah. so that, I think, leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. I think that let's see how far we can twist it and put a bad right. taste in people's mouth is kind of where the Saw and Hostel movies kind of mm-hmm. spawned out of. So I think that you're probably right, and that kind of mm-hmm. horror turned a lot of people off. And that's with counterculture in general, like any thing genre that, or any media that can be counterculture, some of it can be counterculture to expose why something in culture is negative, or it can be just how, like you said, edgy can we be, or like how can we just use this to freak people out to mess with them and take the parts of culture that are subtle and make them like in your face. Mm-hmm. But it's the horror I'm more interested in now and that I realize does exist is that counterculture that is exposing and talking about and kind of critiquing. I imagine that you're more interested in some of the stories from marginalized perspectives, mm-hmm. some of the stuff like. Uh, Jordan Peele's movies kind of critiquing from a place of racial perspective right. is, is it definitely plays a large role in his movies. Right. Um, there's been a lot of female-led horror that kind of examines not just the relationship between men and women, but also the way that the media that people yeah. grow up enjoying. There are a lot of female horror fans who can enjoy the genre and still be like, this can change. We can yeah. be treated better. And I think that that's great i think that this boom of outsider horror is great right for the genre and i think that's led to a lot of unique and fresh stories because it's from different perspectives 
Exactly. So. Yeah, and especially as we go, you know, even not looking just American, too. Definitely. Um, I think talking about so much of horror was based on an American style of what scares Americans, but we go beyond that. We can learn a lot about what other countries are afraid of, what their histories have been, what the future looks like for them, what they're worried about. And it's a really interesting way of learning about other places and then also learning about hey, sometimes Americans are worried about somewhat, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Shallow. Shallow things, yeah. Or there, there's like an obviousness to mm-hmm. some of our frights, yeah. whereas whether it's other countries or more independent studios are looking at more nuanced fears. Sure. I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there a specific subgenre like beyond just, yes, I like uh, stories from this perspective or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I do find myself really enjoying zombie films, so I listened to your Train to Busan episode, and I just loved the zombie uh, discussions there. I think that zombies are really interesting because on their surface, they're one of the least interesting horror villains, I guess is what you would call it, but I find that they really are kind of a blank slate and they lend themselves really well to some commentary stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of movies that I love are zombie movies, even though if you were like, George, what do you think about zombies? I'd be like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously the commercialism critique is well known, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of great stuff. In Train to Busan, I've talked about how Day of the Dead, I think, is a fantastic and underrated movie. Sure. Everyone talks about Night of the Living Dead, which is fantastic, and Day of the Dead, or excuse me, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think Day of the Dead is also fantastic. And I think zombies get into what I really want to talk about, spend some time talking about with this film, is environmental horror or two yes where here's this thing that we pretend we have a lot of control over or we have a lot of understanding of but it can get fucked in like a second yeah and we would have no control over it yeah which is really at the center of the movie we're talking about yeah it really is and that fear of the unknown and how quickly it can shift it really unsettles you it gets under your skin for sure you know whatever you believe in higher power wise is up to you but like the climate is it like whether you believe somebody is controlling it or it just exists exists itself it is when i think of gods i'm like yeah the climate that has the power to just completely wreck us and it's beyond as much as we try to understand it there's so much that is beyond our understanding yeah i mean you look at meteorology and it's like well you throw a dart and maybe (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um so even prediction is as Mm -hmm. bad as it is and you're right that how often has a hurricane completely devastated a town and then it's happening more and more and more. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Are we going to get political? <laughs> it seems like it might go that way. But <laughs> you said that this movie deals with environmental horror. So let's start talking about what movie we're talking about, sure. which is Annihilation. This movie is absolutely spectacular. It's I agree. a movie that I raved about when it came out. Mm-hmm. As soon as you suggested it, I was absolutely all in. I yeah. love this movie. It's a 2018 movie written and directed by Alex Garland. Oh. And it's based on a book by Jeff Vandermeer. Now, Alex Garland, originally strictly a writer, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote the scripts for Sunshine, the shockingly good Dread remake. Original Judge Dread is... Dismal. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, but this remake, pretty fun. Carl Urban, he's a good time in it. And he also wrote 28 Days Later, which is a zombie movie. Oh, okay. So there you go. But then later he broke into directing with Ex Machina in 2014. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
I'm sure that anyone who listens to the show who knows me personally will already know that I talked about Ex Machina relentlessly when it came out. <laughs> I'm sure it was very annoying. I, sure. uh, when I went home for Christmas break that year, I actually forced my parents to watch it with me, and they were just bored to tears. Oh, my <laughs> like, God. It was, it was, how? I don't know. I don't know how. They listened to this show, and so I hope that <laughs> Please they Please write know. us in. Yes. Explain <laughs> how you could be bored by I'm, Ex Machina. I'm disappointed in you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, my mom and I watched Ex Machina. We loved that. But then she couldn't stand Annihilation. So yeah. we've got a, we've got a trend with parents <laughs> who are just. <laughs> the, they don't, they don't click with Garland. <laughs> they don't. But, you know, I guess there's uh, no accounting for taste, so... but uh, I won't say that I'm a disappointed in my mother. <laughs> well, I'm sure she's going to listen to this, and yeah. that would create quite a stir. So. Well, my dad loved uh, The Hitman's Bodyguard, which uh, is a movie that I hate, so we've just accepted that our tastes <laughs> okay. differ at this point. So, yeah, so like I said, I loved this movie, and then afterward I went and read the book. Okay. Because I was like, oh, it was so good, I want to love this book as well. And it's so different. I was like, what right. the hell is this? It's completely different from what the movie is like. And so I looked into it, and Alex Garland said that he read it once, like a long time ago, mm-hmm. and then never reread it. When I think he, he was even, I think I was reading some interviews where he even read it, like maybe pre release or. Yeah. So it was just so long ago, and yeah. it was like. I'll take this basics. <laughs> we'll craft something out of it. Well, that's exactly... He said that he wanted it to be, like, a dream of the book. Mm. And I think that that is exactly what we got, pretty yeah. much. It certainly has a dreamlike quality to mm-hmm. a lot of the movie. Seeing the fact that people are losing time, there's these strange mutations that almost feel like hallucinations. Right. It definitely has a dreamlike element to it. And so I think that his way of approaching that adaptation kind of carried through into it. Definitely. Adaptation definitely plays a big part. <laughs> it does. <laughs> the story of this movie, at its kind of core element, is a biologist's husband disappears. And so when he shows up again out of the blue, he falls ill. And in her effort to find out what's happening, tries to like retrace his steps on mm-hmm. some expedition into an environmental disaster zone. Right. And they find some wild stuff out there, which is putting it mildly. <laughs> the cinematographer is Rob Hardy for mm-hmm. this movie, and he did a really spectacular job with it. The dreamlike quality that I mentioned is really captured by a lot of these really interesting shots where they'll be standing very still, but the camera will kind of be like wobbling right. a little bit and just kind of provide an edge that really lets you put yourself in there. This was done on a really tight schedule. They started filming on July 13th and finished that month. So, wow. yeah, so a little over two weeks they filmed this in, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a lot of it takes place in, like, kind of jungly swampland, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that they were in a rush to get out of there, so <laughs> I <laughs> gotcha, <laughs> understand yeah. why, uh, why that might be the case. But as far as the cast, one thing I noticed, first of all, it's an amazing cast. Oh, and my God. One of the reasons I saw this was because Oscar Isaac was in it. Uh-huh. Criminally underused, but that's yeah. because oh, as yeah. soon as Oscar Isaac is in a movie, he's automatically criminally underused. Yeah, it's true. It's um, really true. But yeah, just everybody. Yeah, and there are some really interesting overlaps in the cast. So Oscar Isaac and Natalie Portman, who play Kane and Lena, are both in different Star Wars trilogies. Mm-hmm. Oscar Isaac and Sonoya Mizuno, who plays a student at the beginning, as well as the humanoid, were both in Ex Machina. 
and Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, and Benedict Wong are all in the MCU. Tessa plays Josie, and Wong plays Lomax. And for people who have read the book, Wong kind of takes the place of the control character, but it's mm -hmm. really, like, greatly truncated. It's yeah. not really a character. He kind of just serves as a sounding board for... Saying exposition drops sounds like an insult, but it's... Right, but <laughs> it's actually... What it, is. it is. And the rest of the cast rounds out with Jennifer Jason Leigh as Dr. Ventress. She's really spectacular in mm -hmm. this. Gina Rodriguez, also very good in it, as Anya. And Tuva Novotny as Cass, and David Gayasi as Daniel as well. Small role for him, but he does, I think he does a lot with it. Kind of a co-worker slash love affair right. participant. <laughs> There's a really awesome opening shot where it's Natalie Portman in quarantine, and she's completely right. surrounded by just a gaggle of scared onlookers. Yep. And it immediately establishes mystery. Yeah. The first line is, what did you eat? Literally, you're like, oh, okay, this is an interrogation yeah. here. They had rations for two weeks, and she was gone for nearly four months, they say. Mm -hmm. She has no sense of time that she was gone for, doesn't remember eating. Some of her party is dead, or she doesn't know what happened to them at all. The fact that she doesn't know what's happening, and we don't know what's happening, exactly. really lets you put yourself in her shoes right. and be like, okay, I'm on board for this. I understand that we're both going on this ride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's one of the things I was also reading that this was not supposed to originally be the start. It was supposed to, that scene where she's talking about the cell splitting mm -hmm. that we come into after the intro was supposed to be the start of the movie. It was just such an interesting and well done choice to start off with, hey, here's some like, quote unquote, spoilers shit is about to go down but all throughout it was like i completely forgot that these people it's gonna been confirmed that something will happen to them because yeah. you're so engrossed in their journey and so engrossed in what's gonna happen but you've been put on edge from the beginning the fact that she's so unsure about what's happening means that like is even the fact that she says that they're dead or missing, like, right. can you even take her at her word? Like, you right? Have... Because she's so like, I don't know if "calm's" the word, yeah. but she's also not like freaking out as much as you would expect somebody who's just been has saying... no memory. Exactly. Yeah. There is a really nice introduction here. You kind of mentioned it. Cut to an asteroid shooting through space, coming mm -hmm. down on Earth, and striking a lighthouse. Beautiful colors as it streaks across, honestly, mm -hmm. and it kind of turns into this interesting like ferrofluid looking like cell division kind of yeah. it looks a little like a prism that you look through when you're a kid it's all these beautiful colors and everything and it does turn into these cells dividing it pulls out a little bit and it becomes natalie portman as lena teaching a class and she is in fact showing a cancer replicating that's what these right. cells are and for people who've seen the movie already, it feels a little on the nose for them to be like, look at this cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the first time, you're just like, oh, I'm in for some shit here. Like, right, exactly. <laughs> they kind of throw some pretty intense jargon at, at you. Like, she's teaching it like a real class, it feels like. And mm -hmm. the fact that it feels scientific kind of lends a weight to the rest of the movie as well. Right. The fact that she's 
clearly very intelligent and this class is accelerated it feels like or at right. the very least it's not something that i understand <laughs> so right. who knows i mean that doesn't necessarily mean much but at the very least it's a college level biology course right. so and it's starting us off on this theme of them desperately trying to understand this thing that as the movie goes on we have to come to terms with isn't gonna have a ton of explanations yeah just like so she goes to leave this class after we see the is cancer and she's stopped by dan who invites her to a garden party on saturday and she says she has to paint our the bedroom <laughs> and it's, it's it kind of makes me laugh because i'm like this is great it feels like a little melodramatic but also i'm like yes all right, right. nally portman she's gonna be going for it in this <laughs> role <laughs> like, she's she's fully in and Dan says, it's been a year, it's not a betrayal or an insult to his memory to go to a barbecue. Mm-hmm. But it's very obvious that there's something more going on here. Right. Uh, there's a lot of tension between the two of them. More than just, I don't want to go to your barbecue, stop inviting me. Like, who says that straight up? Yeah. <laughs> to somebody. Yeah, it's pretty You intense. don't say to, like, a grieving <laughs> potential widow, hey, yeah. you don't have to worry about yeah, <laughs> insulting <it's>... him. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. But he, he goes for it. She wasn't making it up, though. She did. She goes home, and she starts painting. After her good cry. Yeah, she has a you nice You can't forget family. Natalie That's Portman's right. good cry. And the song Helplessly Hope is <laughs> playing, and it's... Which is, like, only music with words That's throughout this, or if so, it's, right. like... Because music is very sparse, sparse. Yeah, in this sure. movie, aside from a very critical moment that I'm sure we'll get to later. Yeah, definitely. I think that you're right, that it is the only one with like vocals it's very thematic we see the pictures of her husband and her and the memories of them as she cries and it's a pretty big shift from the book again because she's in the book she's very much like an ice queen as it were Um, okay and i mean i definitely understand why they would make this change in order to kind of help people empathize with her Mm -hmm. for mainstream markets but I think that having a protagonist who is a little bit more closed off emotionally is a pretty interesting thing that the book does, especially because it is jumping around a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of from a different perspective, not really from her perspective. So right. it's the mystery kind of unravels from a different angle. And so the fact that she's so closed off makes it pretty interesting because you have to kind of probe in a little more into determining what's a lie and what's not. So it's just, it's a difference from the book that both of them, I think, work really well. Sure. And then it does help to humanize her, like I said. And she looks at a locket with Oscar Isaac's handsome face in it. Yeah. Totally, I get it. (laughs) She's, she goes upstairs and she's painting the room and, oh my God, it's the back of Oscar Isaac's head. (laughs) 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 And he's, uh, he's down at the bottom of the stairs and he walks up Mm -hmm. and she's very happy to see him. But what's interesting is, he doesn't really have any reaction. He, yeah. He's very flat when they're having their reunion. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of notices, but she doesn't really matter. Like, she doesn't care that much at this yeah. point. She goes in for a second round of hugs. But it's it's a very interesting reaction from someone who's apparently been missing for a year. And right. he seems to have no memory as well. So yeah. we're seeing that this is a pattern, the fact that later... Natalie Portman's character, Lena, will not have her memory, and, and now Oscar Isaac's character of Kane doesn't have his. Mm-hmm. So, so something's in the, in the water, as it were. There's a very interesting shot here that I noticed that definitely didn't click with me the first time, but when they're sitting at the table together... I noticed this too! <laughs> it's so good! 
yeah. And Love a frame within a frame. Yes, and his hand is is sitting on the table, and it creates the mirror image of his hand mm-hmm. pointing the other way. And it's a very interesting shot. There's a lot of kind of echoes and mirrors that mm-hmm. exist in this movie, and they're not all... Some of them are very obvious, like the deer one that will come up later, but... Right. There's a lot of little ones like this where, like we both said, seeing this kind of mirrored image doesn't mean anything to you the first time through. Right. But then when you go back, you pick up on a lot of these little details, and that's the kind of thing that makes something rewatchable. Right. So, Natalie Portman tells him that nobody has any idea what happened to his unit. And he doesn't have any memory either, seems totally fried, and she quickly gets frustrated with the lack of answers. Yeah. Understandably so. This also feels a little bit closer to what the book character is like, this mm. like, frustrated state of having a kind of a short temper. She demands an answer, and he asks if it even matters. Right. And he takes a sip from the water glass that he had there, announces that he does not feel very well, and he, it revealed that he left some blood floating around in the water. And so he starts hemorrhaging and seizing, and it's all very intense. He's in the ambulance getting driven down, but then a bunch of police show up, and the ambulance guy Mm -hmm. is like, did you call for a police escort? (laughs) (laughs) And the police force them off the road. They're forced out of the ambulance at gunpoint. And this is something that I actually really like that they do, is they kind of segment the movie by location. And so Mm -hmm. it cuts to black here, and the label Area X appears. And this kind of helps to make it feel like a new section. Like, it happens at kind of like the act markers. Sure. And it makes it feel a little like a book. It kind of adds some structure to it that's in a way that I like, personally. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy who likes a lot of structure and stuff. I don't play a lot of open-world games because I like to just... I want to experience what they've designed for me. Yeah. And so if they provide that structure and I can go through it and kind of understand where I'm going and not have to be like, oh, well, I'm lost and I'm trying to find it. That's something that I like in terms of video games and in terms of movies. Like, I I think it's great when they play with that structure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I can certainly appreciate someone messing around with the rules in their own right. But to a certain extent, I'm a big fan of tropes. And that's why I like horror movies so much. You know, Mm kind of having that structure that plays so frequently is something that I think horror movies do a lot with. We get this label, Area X, and it's Lena in a prison-style hospital being watched by the psychologist Dr. Ventress, mm-hmm. who enters as Lena throws up. Now, this is Jennifer Jason Lee. She's spectacular in this movie. She has a yeah. real uh, no-bullshit attitude. It's, it's great. There's a lot of conversation about what makes a strong female character. Yeah. And a lot of people say that it it's not just about physical strength, necessarily. It's right. about strength of character. And people they'll make a character kind of quote unquote a frigid bitch and be like done yeah strong female character because she's mean and i don't think that that's the case but i think that that kind of not taking shit from people can be an element of a strong female character and i think that dr ventress in this is a really strong lead because she's the leader of the team that forms here mm-hmm. and she's very much the one who kind of keeps things on track she right. takes charge in a way that feels very natural yeah. and you know we find out later that she has an illness but she's pressing on she's using it as a motivation instead of letting it drag her down and kind of having that persistence and that that strength inside 
I think is part of what makes this a really interesting character and a, and a strong female character. I'm curious if you have, have any opinions on what makes a strong female character in general, if you agree with me that Dr. Ventress is an interesting and strong character. Yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right, and I think in terms of each of these main characters that form the party that goes into what we'll identify as the Shimmer, your definition of takes no shit comes through with these women in different ways. And with Ventress, it's in a very straightforward mythological way in that she's like, we have a goal. I am desperate to get to that goal. She even says at one point, I'm going there. I'm not afraid to go alone. It's just a matter if you join me. And she leaves while the group is having an argument about what they should even be doing. Yeah. And all of these characters take no shit in their own ways. And it's interesting to see how that creates conflict, how that creates depth to character. Yeah. Because I think strong female character within itself, what people are really asking for is just depth to women characters. Three dimensions, Three dimensions. And three dimensions that aren't just focused on, or aren't purely focused on serving a man. Because... A lot of times a development for a women character, especially if they're side characters, or even if they are menu characters, their goals are focused on men. But falling in, in love. Right, falling in love, supporting them in whatever way, even being subordinate to. So in a movie um, where a lot of it takes place where it's just these women, first of all, you're going to have a situation where they're not being represented by the men that are surrounded by. Yeah, there's very few men in this movie total, and all of them get left behind relatively quickly. Right. There's a moment where they're all talking about... uh, Lena is introduced to the fact that they're going to go into the Shimmer. This is skipping ahead a little bit, but there's a a moment where, as Lena learns about the next group going in, she's like, oh, all women. And somebody says, oh, all scientists. Before then, it had all been military. And I think that's starting to play a little bit into the genderedness of this, where mm-hmm. we have, you know, people who are just trying to conquer or understand the shimmer, bring it down, whereas we have this knowledge base, this exploration based team going in to see if that changes anything. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a really interesting point. And that difference in perspective is definitely impacts the way that they kind of interact with the shimmer definitely um overall i mean they find like at one point they find a ton of weapons and the character anya goes to like like she's like oh yeah this is dope like i'm gonna take this and she's like oh this is too heavy i'm not carrying this around (laughs) (laughs) and so just the fact that they had that kind of firepower Mm -hmm. is a very aggressive approach to something And that kind of comes up again later in terms of the way that the character Lena interacts with something later on. Sure. Uh, Dr. Ventress is basically interrogating Lena here about her past, and she's getting as many questions as she's giving here, but she's refusing to answer them, but in a way that doesn't, like, she kind of just brushes past it. It's like she doesn't even hear Mm -hmm. the questions. All, All she hears is the lack of answers that she's getting from Lena, but her questions do an interesting job of revealing backstory about Lena, despite the fact that she's not really giving us anything. So it reveals her military history, seven years in the army, her specialization in biology in the life cycle of the cell, and that her husband, Sergeant Kane, currently has multiple organ failure and massive internal bleeding. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's also in this hospital area. She doesn't understand what's happening, and they both head outside. And you get a really interesting shot of 
just Lena Natalie Portman is just in complete shock and awe. And she does a really good job of kind of capturing this because we see just a wall of moving colors and light separating them from the other side. This is what you referred to as the shimmer. And it's really beautiful. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's a really cool image to see it kind of floating around. It looks like a bubble, like the way that the colors right. kind of reflect in a bubble when you... Um, are blown bubbles as a kid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so she says that they have a lot of theories, but not a lot of facts. Three years ago, Blackstone National Park reported the shimmer around a lighthouse that got hit. Uh, somebody went in, never returned. They've approached several ways, but nothing has ever come back. And the worst part is, is that it's expanding. This is the real mm-hmm. issue. This kind of puts the ticking clock on it, as it were. Because they said that in a matter of months, it'll be taking over cities. And then within years, it'll be taking over states, the country, etc. This fact that they have no idea of really what's even in there because nothing's coming back Mm -hmm. certainly leads them to not be thrilled by this prospect, which is why they've been putting so many people in. They say nothing has come back, but something has. Natalie Portman says that. She says, but something has. And it cuts to her husband. So obviously this is what they're talking about. And Ventress asks her if she wants to go home. Mm -hmm. And Natalie Portman says, no, she doesn't want to go home. And I think that this is, again, like you said, they're all, they're all very strong and they all kind of take no shit in their own way. And I think that this kind of determination um, is something that Ventress and Lena kind of share. This is kind of the connection that they have. And yeah. I think part of why why she's able to kind of recruit Lena for this task in the first place is because she kind of recognizes that same, same self-determination. Right. There's a flashback to Lena and Kane lying in bed. And they're discussing God and their ineffability and the fact that cells could technically be immortal if you circumvent some limit that it was... I didn't bother re-looking it up because it was some science-y term. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no one cares. It's some <laughs> limit in cells that means that aging is a fault in them, basically. That mm-hmm. other, If you circumvent that limit, they would technically be immortal. And I think that they have a very charming relationship. I think yeah. they have great chemistry together. And them laying in there is really fantastic again pretty different from the book (laughs) they have a very fraught relationship in the book um a lot of that comes from the fact that they're both a little more uptight and Mm -hmm. i think a lot of that has to do with their kind of military training and and the the fact they're like they said they both met in the military these scenes are so important too because first of all they're all very short like we're not sticking around with lena and kane being happy for long yeah little, um, just a little taste here it's and there. exactly and that's exactly it's just that little taste amongst like this heavy cloud of anxiety this entire movie is it's not a fraught anxiety there's not a lot of very quick moving scenes it's all just this like, slow buildup of dread and especially yeah. as we're getting less and less answers the farther <laughs> we go in. It's just like it dread upon dread upon dread. But then there's these small moments where you're like, okay, but we still got to go through it. Because what if we can have, again, the lightness of experience as audience members, more of those uh, softer scenes. Mm-hmm. But also, like, story-wise, what if we discover the answers we need for Lena and Kane to go back to that. Exactly. So that's section A of the timeline. Mm-hmm. We cut back to section B, which is Ventress talking to Lena. And then section C of the timeline is her in quarantine. So mm-hmm. we're in section B here. <laughs> right. And Lena is standing outside kind of absorbing 
what she's seen. And she's approached by Anya, uh, who kind of is like, oh, come talk to my crew. You know, you look, why are you over here all alone? Right. Come hang out with us. She introduces her to Cassie, and she also goes by Cass and Josie. And these are all immediately very charming people. They have a very easy rapport among themselves. Anya hits on Lena. It's very funny. They all comment on it because she's like, oh, like, do you have to hit on everything that moves? And she's like, hey, I'm going into the shimmer tomorrow. I might as well roll the dice. Right. And so that's a really fun way of kind of dropping some more story elements where, oh, they're going into the shimmer tomorrow. We know that this is where Kane went, and so we perk up a little bit here. They say that Ventress is actually the one leading them in. Mm-hmm. And Lena wants in. So we cut back to time C here. Now we're in present day. And Lena says that the way, the reason that she went in is because she owed Kane. She owed him this much. And in section B, timeline B, the mission team approaches. She, she gets into the group, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's going into the Shimmer with them. And they approach the Shimmer... And they seem to be almost kind of hypnotized by it as mm-hmm. they approach. And it's, you know, obviously these beautiful colors moving around. If it was in real life, I'd probably be in pretty serious awe of it as well. Right. But it seems almost like more than that until it's broken by Ventress crossing through it and mm-hmm. into the actual other side of it. I thought it was interesting also that there was no resistance at all from the border when they passed through. It doesn't, right. doesn't yeah. act like... A fluid it doesn't act even like smoke or anything it's truly it seems like it's just light just like a light yeah. uh, in a bubble but as they enter the shimmer we get a vision of lena cheating on mm-hmm. kane with the co-worker we saw earlier dan but this is also very quick the same way that the moments of her being happy are very quick we get sort of the echo of this the reverse the mirror image of it are these also quick little snippets of her breaking kind of the trust of her marriage and yeah um and having this moment that she's clearly very guilty about later on cuts back and she's in a tent with no memory of how she got there yeah and this abrupt jumping around really helps to keep us on our toes a little bit and right keep us off balance and um, this shot this time was startling to me because i realized i was telling you earlier this is my sixth watch through so i'm looking for different things every time and this time i was really focused on the use of color and you see her wake up in the tent but it's almost like i think it's mostly her in silhouette and mm-hmm. just like this bright yellow yeah. of the tent and it is the most color like the most saturated color we have seen thus far. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things I noticed, once they enter the Shimmer, all the natural parts of the Shimmer, all the outside world of the Shimmer, is so lush, is so saturated. Willy Wonka candy, look it up kind of world. Yeah, it's an incredibly verdant kind of foresty mm -hmm. swampland kind of area. Right. And it's gorgeous, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. And then so much of the human world are these dark places there's so little light if there is light it's very muted in that like slight gray overtone that i'm kind of even more used to with common horror movies Mm -hmm. so we have this the buildings are even made out of they're kind of like shantytown looking right yeah these like crude metal huts and stuff like they refer to it as huts and she says it's like a settlement it's not even like a permanent structure Mm -hmm. kind of thing and so these rickety crude buildings compared to the lushness of the forest and the natural world around them 
is a really interesting contrast between the two of them. Exactly. And it's like, we're supposed to be so afraid of the Shimmer, and we are. We're unsettled by it because we keep being introduced to these crazy abominations in it. But at the same time, it's what is naturally pleasing to our eyes. So it's this dichotomy of, aren't the spaces that they're entering, like the human-made spaces, supposed to be the more safe ones, but then they're the ones that are so dark, the ones yeah. that feel like something's going to pop out of. But it's really like this place that is more open, more lit, more like dreamlike in color where the real danger is. Definitely. It's such a bright splash of color, this yellow. But when she exits it, it's like an over, almost overwhelming amount of green yeah. as well. Like it's so bright. Right. And she's as stunned by it as we are. She's taking it all in and she finally hears the rest of her crew. And she stumbles upon them, and none of them have any memory of getting past the tree line either. Mm -hmm. So none of them know how they got there. But based on rations, they say that they've been out here either three or four days. And the electronics work, but don't send a signal out. And the compass is not directing them. It's just spinning around. But Ventress is all business. They figure out a way to, to like orient themselves. They figure out which way is south. And she says, all right, let's head out. Let's pack up and get it going. Right. And that's exactly what they do. As they're walking along, it leads them to this hut that I mentioned. It's like a half underwater building, which is the most colorful mold I've ever <laughs> seen. Just these beautiful pinks and blues and yellows. Right. And I've, I would never have thought I would call mold beautiful. but And also there's some boats. Yeah. Wonderful. Spectacular. Great for them. Right. <laughs> and I think this is the first time we start getting introduced, along with the mold, there's a lot of flowers. And yeah. that's where we start getting introduced to the fact that mutations are going to be a big part of how the shimmer works. Definitely. Um, which is another moment where Lena's getting really into the scientific talk, but it's it's grounded enough, especially, and I appreciate that some of her team members are like, you know, they pull the classic, hey, can you speak in English, please, <laughs> kind of comment, and it's brought down a level, so we really understand, here's Lena using her knowledge, but she's like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, she, she even says that they look so different, you wouldn't think that they're the same, but they're all growing from the same branch structure, so they have to be the same species, and that they're stuck in a continuous mutation. But she says that if you saw it in a human, you'd call it a pathology. Mm -hmm. This seems like a sickness. It's rampant. It's right. too much. It's out of control. Josie emerges from the shack. She went to check it out while Lena is looking at these plants. And she says that there seems to be nothing interesting, long abandoned, even maybe before the shimmer was there. But as she's saying it, classic horror move. Yeah. <laughs> she just gets yanked back by an unseen force. Very, It's a very funny jump scare to me because right. it's so out of nowhere. And I... It does not seem like the kind of movie that would have even one jump scare in it. It feels so earned, the fact that it caught me by such surprise that yeah. I was like, oh, shit. So she gets dragged in, and she's getting dragged underwater, but Lena, we get to see some of that military training, that quick acting. Mm -hmm. She kicks her butt into gear, and she dives in and saves her. She pulls out Josie, but there's movement in the water still. And as they're getting back to the shoreline, a huge albino crocodile emerges and bullets don't seem to be really doing a ton to it it right. takes a lot of fire before it finally dies this in addition to the plants also has some crazy mutations going on they say it has the rows of teeth like a shark does so it's like a kind of a cross between them and there's another really cool shot here that i wanted to call out where the camera is in like the gullet yeah. of the alligator and like looking out as she's holding up the mm -hmm. mouth of it. It's very cool. I spent that whole scene like, oh, it's gonna come back, isn't it? <laughs> 
So that's it's one of those things where this movie is also it's doing some things, taking its time to like give you the anxiety of tropes or common moments that in another horror film might be a different reaction. So yeah. for example, it might be we're sitting in that mouth and we're staring at these people and then it's another way they're creating this really unsettling tension because you're like, when is it going to do that? Because we just saw a jump scare, so clearly we're going to have some more, right? Yeah. Like, that would be a perfect jump scare right now. <laughs> so, yeah, I just think that it's another way that it builds such a great tension. Definitely. And present day Lena says that the mutations were subtle at first, like the flower thing, but they grow stronger as they got closer to the lighthouse. And she mentions that they weren't always nightmarish, sometimes beautiful. And, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the case with the flowers. Like I said, even the mold looked nice, and there's a nice shot of them kind of boating through, and mm-hmm. we see some fish underwater with these really vibrant flowers. And it does look really nice. A really interesting moment happens here where Lena gets kind of a pain in her arm, mm-hmm. and it starts, like, bruising up. In the present-day scene, it's very obvious you're looking at the same spot. Yeah. And she has a big Ouroboros tattoo right. on that spot that she's now getting the bruise. But beyond the bruise, it's, it's currently unmarked. And yeah. in fact, the person who has that tattoo is Anya. Yeah. She has the, the same exact tattoo in the same exact spot. Now, Cass and Lena start talking about why they volunteered for this, basically, suicide mission. And Cass says, we're all damaged goods here. Mm-hmm. And that she could tell that uh, Lena lost somebody. And so they discuss their reasons for volunteering. Cass lost her daughter to leukemia. Mm-hmm. And she kind of lost herself in the process as well. She says Anya is sober. And Josie was was doing self-harm in an mm-hmm. effort to, quote unquote, feel alive is what they said. Um, right. That it wasn't about like trying to kill herself. You know, you get endorphins. Like, that's part of what self-harm is about. Right. Don't cut yourself. There, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that is part of what it is. So they all have a trauma in their history. The only one we don't find out about at this moment is Ventress, but mm-hmm. we do find out later that she is also sick, that she has cancer. Right. We're kind of left to sit with that and understand the kind of thing that leads someone to take on a mission like this that's so dangerous and everything. But we don't get too long to sit with that because they stumble across Fort Amaya, which is way more overrun, it feels like, than the timing would account for. And this is something that perpetuates throughout the entire movie is that kind of rampant and viral growth that we were talking about manifesting in a way that is kind of nature reclaiming the space that mankind had staked out. Right. And creates a lot of really interesting dichotomies and contrasts in the way just that the scenery lays out. I know that there are issues with The Last of Us, but that the setting of The Last of Us kind of has a very similar tone in this kind of post-apocalyptic nature reclaiming the land kind of thing. Right. And there's traces of past expeditions in the mess hall of this fort. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that it's the expedition that Kane, her husband, was on. And there's a schedule for guard shifts. So they're like, if they were guarding, guarding, we should be guarding as well. And this is, I think, a great idea. It's smart. Shows a logic that I probably would not... I would not have been like... I recognized it as, like, guard shifts, and I would have been like, huh, all right, good night, <laughs> everyone. That was the thing they did. <laughs> <laughs> they also... Ventress finds a memory card uh, labeled for those that follow. Good Lord, this is... It's really... This is... Yeah. the We get the scare before, but this is horrific, <laughs> this yeah. next bit. They watch on the camera, Josie has, and they see Kane cut open a willing participant's mm-hmm. stomach, and... 
first of all, that's gross on its own. Yeah. And then he peels it back, and it, first of all, looks very gory and gross. It looks very yeah. realistic. It's great effects there, but he pulls it back, and it's like maybe his intestines it might be something else are like crawling around inside right. of his body they look like worms it's truly horrific escalation it's yeah. absolutely disgusting and Kane's like sinking his hand like between them so it's like these people are also there's this level of we're dealing with people who are a little bit gone at this point and maybe not just human themselves because he's just sinking his hand in between those slithering intestines quote unquote yeah and they're getting, as their friend is dying, they're not really grieving him. They've got, it, like, it, almost... It feels a, like a religious experience. That, or I was thinking bit. even, like, like a frat bro <laughs> moment almost, where they're like, yo, we're, <laughs> we're showing this. Isn't this crazy? <laughs> so it's just, oh, it's this very, very just, why are they not freaking out yeah. about... All right, Pledge, you have to have the word in <laughs> yeah. intestines this time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, it's, so I'm somebody who, you know, talking about horror tropes, like, I watched a lot of Supernatural. When they so much as took out a blade to cut themselves for blood, like, I turned away. Like, I closed my eyes. I'm not somebody who can watch body horror. Mm. But with this scene, and I think this comes back to, like, that crafting of this, like, just true, like, bone-deep desire to get some sort of answers. Like, yeah. The fact that this video was introduced with to those who follow, it's like, here's finally, finally, give us an answer. So I'm staring at this, like, so, like, I am, like, crawling inside my skin. Like, I might as well have my intestines. The classic Lincoln Park. Exactly. <laughs> but you just, you can't look away because anything that I miss at this point might be, like, one of few answers I'm yeah. going to get in this movie. Yeah, it's, it's gross, but they really make sure that your attention is on there. They are all horrified as well, obviously. It's absolutely right. disgusting. And they start to explore a little more, and they discover the pool area of the mess hall and discover the soldier in the video mm -hmm. is there. He's dead, obviously. But he's become kind of like a mural of like rot and mold. His yeah. body is completely separated. It's torn in two. His torso and head are like 10 feet up in the air, basically, up yeah. on the wall. And the chair is there. And it's very beautiful in a kind of morbid way. It, right. it feels like a sacrifice almost. Um, mm -hmm. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of being in Pompeii and seeing all the, oh, the like yeah. people like immortalized there that way. It felt a little like that and horrific, sort of in the same way, where you're like, "This was this is a dead person." <laughs> like, yeah. And I think the reactions of the different characters to this moment come back to like the different depth they're given because we have Josie freaking out, mm -hmm. like rightfully so. She's like, she "I don't want to stay, stay here." Yeah. Yes, I don't want to stay here. We've got Ventress being like, "We have to. We can't go it's any too further late to today." Press on, yeah. Yep. We've got Lena reacting just by like, "All right, let me collect some samples. Let me, yeah, I can knowledge my way yeah. out of this." We've got Anya just being like, "Okay, well, you know, Josie, she, she let's to help Josie." Yeah, yeah, let's just we'll go outside, and it's just it's one of those interesting moments where I'm like, "Why do you think outside is okay?" But yeah. how is that any better than in here? Yeah, Josie um, is also a paramedic, which I think kind of plays into uh, the fact yeah. of why her first instinct is maybe to turn to someone else and kind of use yeah. that as a distraction for herself 
is taking care of someone else and making True. them feel better. But yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gross. They don't want to stay there, but they have to, basically. They do decide that they're going to do the guard shifts as well. And in the night, Lena goes to chat with Ventress, who is the one currently keeping watch. And she asks Ventress why, as a psychologist, why she thinks that her husband volunteered for a suicide mission. And Ventress says that she's confusing suicide with self-destruction. And that so, like, so many more people do, they self-destruct as opposed right. to actually committing suicide. Smoking, drinking, sabotaging ourselves and our relationships. I think that one thing that's really interesting is the tattoo imagery that's really heavy. I mean, we see it on Anya a lot. It obviously appears mm. on Lena as well. Is this Ouroboros, that really ties into the theme of self-destruction. That right. snake eating its own tail that self-consumption, mm-hmm. the sabotaging yourself and kind of being your own worst enemy. Right. But it's also a double play because with them, it's a figure eight as well. So it's also this infinity symbol. We're dealing with these two combating forces of this theme of cancer and of infinite life up against self-destruction. I think that there's a really interesting kind of balance in nature that does come up even more in this movie, but kind of the way that you see with some forest fires clear away so that new right. life can can grow, and this kind of birth from death kind of thing is something that this movie really plays with, and that kind of mirror image, I think, is a huge part of it. They're interrupted by a noise during this conversation and discover that something has come through the fence. It tore right through it, like, no problem. Mm-hmm. And... They're all on guard, but despite the fact that they're literally all looking around and everything, <clears throat> something absconds with Shepard, with Cass. Mm-hmm. And it drags her away screaming. And the screaming abruptly stops. And, yeah. boy, that's so much worse than the screaming. Right, exactly. <laughs> Josie and Anya are like, okay, we need to just head back. We need to just leave. Like, this thing just took Cass. We're getting attacked now. We need to just go. But Ventress insists that they need to continue to the source of the shimmer. She kind of stalks off a little bit. And she's mad. But Lena explains to Josie and Anya that she agrees they should leave, but that the quickest way out is to keep going, is to go deeper. Because it took them six days to get to this point, and they're two days away from the shoreline, which they can then follow to the exit. So she's saying, "We, we, we should just keep going because that's the fastest way to get out of this situation, period. If we find the answer... Well, that's just icing, baby. <laughs> right. I think she even, she doesn't mention that because she's even asked, like, this isn't some plot just to get us to the lighthouse. And she's like, no. Yeah, she just says that the the, ba- the fastest way out is forward, is, right. all, is all she tells them. And then we go to present day, and Benedict Long says, so you lied to them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she says yes. And she admits it. And this is also when we find out that Ventress had cancer. There's a really interesting synchronicity in this movie that this is kind of what i was talking about with the death and life thing because when they go after to follow ventress lena is looking to confirm the death of cassie and she finds what looks like one deer but it's revealed to be two right one kind of emerges from behind the other one the one in front is bright white and has beautiful pink flowers on its antlers the other one that comes out behind it looks kind of diseased and has mm-hmm. these weird streaks on its body and it has bare antlers. And it kind of has this, like, death and life, there is no one without the other right. sort of imagery that really kind of permeates this movie. Um, it's a nature out of control thing. She does find the body. The throat is completely torn out. It yeah. is 
disgusting. <laughs> but it's it's also very dreamlike. This yeah. scene in the clearing with the deer and then her finding the corpse and getting kind of shocked back to reality. Anya, at this point, is completely on edge. She's sort of losing it a little bit. Right. But they're like, all right, yeah, she's dead. We're going to just camp in this nearby evacuated settlement, and then tomorrow we'll continue on to the lighthouse. They find really cool but creepy images of people made out of trees. Mm-hmm. And she explains, again, through some intense science talk, that the gene in your DNA that is the instructions for what your cells should do to build your body, that if you looked at these plants, that you would find that those instructions, yes, because they grew naturally. It's kind of like an imprint. It's like an echo of the people that used to live there. Right. This is where they conclude that the shimmer is a prism that refracts everything. Yeah. It refracts light. The comm signals, which are, they say, are still going out. They're just scrambled. And and DNA. Even yeah. their DNA. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a really wild idea, but right. Lena, in the middle of the night, checks it and concludes that, in fact, her DNA and her cells are wild and out. Yeah, so. they're, they're caught up in the same rainbowy color scheme that we've seen with the shimmer but also she had been we had seen her checking the weird dna of some of these plants and they were doing the exact same thing yeah so it's very much like the shimmer has kind of permeated into everyone who's there it's become a part of them already it's in their cells on a cellular level they're part of the shimmer now after this she goes to sleep and she dreams about breaking off her affair with dan like she dreams Mm -hmm. about that moment but she gets woken up by Anya, who immediately knocks her back out with the butt of the rifle. I thought it was a right. little funny that she's like, <laughs> get up! Just kidding! Boom! <laughs> uh, Lena awakens to find herself and the other two tied to chairs. And Anya confronts Lena about her connection to Kane. Yeah. This is a really awesome confrontation scene where yeah. she is fully unhinged at this point. She admits that she yeah, doesn't she... know if it's if she's crazy or not. Right. I'm curious what you think about this scene kind of playing out just this part because it, it turns into another kind of horrific situation. Yeah. Just this interrogation, I think, is so strong of a scene and so powerful. Right. It comes back to what we kind of mentioned earlier where this interrogation scene, if Anya had been played by a man, like if that character was a man, it would just have a completely different dynamic. I don't think we would have had the moments where she's admitting maybe she is the one who's wrong in this situation. We wouldn't have a lot of her just outright confessions that this is because she's scared shitless. She is perhaps the one in the situation that is acting the most realistically. Whenever something's attacking them, she is scared, but also is like, she she balances out the need for survival with the absolute just scared out of her mind. So I think that like level of vulnerability there and this this scene and the one that follows was what made me appreciate that there's not like sexual violence in this movie because I think there are ways that that different themes, different directions there could have been. And I think that gets back to some of the tropes I kind of avoid in horror 
where there's nothing like gratuitous about the scene. Like the most gratuitous thing about Anya's actions is her slamming the butt of her rifle. Yeah, overall, this interrogation scene, we want to snap our fingers and be like, Anya, like you are going a little crazy right now. Like I get that you are frustrated by being lied to. I feel for Anya in this situation even more so than uh, Natalie Portman's character right now, more so than for Lena right now, because I'm like, yeah, Lena, you did lie. And also, <laughs> you are a cheater. And also, you didn't treat your husband well. Yeah. And why weren't you being upfront with these people? So it's just a very emotionally charged scene where you're like, you don't know how it's going to go down. Again, you're forgetting that you've already been spoiled on who dies yeah. in this moment. You're like, oh, God, yeah. how does this... Lena feels like she's in danger. Right. Like, despite the fact that she admits that she's the only one who makes it out, you're like, oh, Lena's in for it here. Yeah. And Anya, some of what she says is really unsettling on, like, a really deep level for me, where she's like, I can see my fingerprints moving. Right. And she says, do you think that my insides are moving as well, like the guy in the video? Well, I'm going to see if your insides move. Right. And it's really intense and scary, and she does this really great kind of turning on this villainous image, but she's interrupted by the sound of Cassie screaming, help me. Right. One thing that I want to bring back to is in this scene, she mentions, you know, there's two theories about what happened to people when they enter the Shimmer. Either something kills them or they end up killing each other just from the madness of it all. And the reason I bring that up is because we're really playing into the uh, environmental horror there where we're playing with the idea of Is it really the environment that's the problem, or is it human problem with the environment? Are the humans the ones creating all the problems? And, you know, we could talk about how that relates to climate change, and it's just, it's bringing to a level of, you as a viewer, you're a human in this situation, but let's expose the ugliness of what humans can do to each other, despite the fact that the overall horror here is environmental changes. Yeah, absolutely. And we get to see one of these environmental changes. Right. Because <laughs> she goes to cut open her stomach, and it's interrupted by the sound of Cassie screaming, help me. Now, we saw Cassie dead. Right. We know that she is. But Anya is like, you said she was dead, and, and goes to help. So she completely right. abandons this would-be stabbing. And it's revealed instead, as she rounds the corner, that it is, in fact, not Cass, but the scariest bear of all time. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is what... So, a little backstory as to why we're talking about this movie is originally when you were like, Sloan, give me a movie, you know, if you come up with a horror movie you want to do, let me know. And in my head, I had been like, oh, what about Annihilation? Like, I have never left a theater more scared than after I left Annihilation. But I looked it up, and it's, like, listed as a thriller, and you have your own opinions about thriller, so I was like, okay, maybe it's not applicable. I can see why it's focused on different messaging and doesn't crown as horror. But then you were on, you made a tweet saying how Annihilation was one of your top horror movies, and that, like, led us to a discussion of, yeah, this shit is super scary. And I think it was, you were saying this bear scene especially just stands out in your mind as, like, one of the scariest things you've seen, like, whether it was the decade or the whatever. It it unsettles me at my very core. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that not only does this bear look terrifying, it's huge, it Mm -hmm. has a skull face, it screams in the voice of its victim, Cassie. Right. It's 
just absolutely monstrous. It's great work by visual effects supervisor Andrew Whitehurst. I have to applaud him because, yeah. good lord, this thing just makes me quake in my boots. And, right. like, it's just so unnatural feeling. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, it's all it's all natural elements. Like, right. it's like a skull, and it's, it's a bear, and it's this constant threat of... Bears are already scary to start with, and then you right. kind of get this ratcheting up of the scary parts of the bear yeah. and boy it's it's just really bad and you're like you're watching it approach them while they're still tied to these chairs and yeah. you're like there's nothing they can do and it's screaming in the voice of their friend yeah and it's really just awful yeah. <laughs> and it walks up and it just like gently gnaws on josie's shoulder a right. little bit and i think lena even says she's like don't react we're I know in the theaters especially. Actually, like, even when I... I, I had to pause in my note-taking, because I... Every time the scene plays... And I've seen this movie now on everything from a huge theater screen to an iPad. But I just can't move myself. I'm like, I'm with them. Like, I am stopped breathing. I am stopped moving. And all you can do is just, like, cope with the fact that you are just... Again, it's one of those things where easily, if a different movie, a different feeling, I would just close my eyes. I would be like, you know, these sounds are horrific enough. I can understand what's happening by closing my eyes. But there's no way to in this moment. It's you're truly... You might as well be tied to your chair just as much as they are. Yeah. It grips. It grips you Mm -hmm. in a way that is really impressive and i think that part of that is the writing and just the way that it's set up but a lot of it is just the visuals are so striking and so Mm -hmm. strong and they really grab you and they force you to look at what's happening on the screen what's funny though is that anya does re-emerge from the hallway bloody butt up and she starts shooting at the bear and it runs over it knocks over josie and lena and frees them from their bonds but it just pulverizes anya (laughs) like she gets just torn asunder it literally tears her jaw off it's brutal it's really an awful kill it it reminds me of grizzly man where you just have Werner herzog being like you must never (laughs) listen to this tape and like that's this is that right uh but not real (laughs) so r.i.p timothy treadwell (laughs) the bear comes back and it starts attacking lena but josie who up to this point has been probably the most meek of the group, blows its brains out. Yeah. She just unloads on this bear. And up to that point, right. she's the physicist, with which is the most kind of like abstract in the way of how is this going to help in the shimmer. And seeing her take charge in this situation when just in the pool, you know, even seeing that dead right. guy had been enough to send her going through, it really makes you kind of see like, the way that the shimmer is changing people yeah. uh, on more level than just the physical, even. It doesn't matter if it's because of the refraction or not, or just the experience of being out there. She's changed indelibly right. by the fact that she's going through this experience. Ventress heads off before light. Yeah. She says that at this point it's too dangerous. We have to just keep going. And Josie doesn't want to face it or fight. Her and Lena wait until the next morning and then she's just like i'm done like i i'm yeah i'm done with this and especially it's because you know she talks about what's kind of all on our minds after we're settling from that bear scene where she talks about uh how the bear can echo your voice and she's like imagine that after you're dead the last thing that survives of you is you 
being panicked, you being distraught. You know, I think that gives a lot of weight to... This is a movie that doesn't give a lot of answers, but I truly do think is a decision that she's about to make, Mm -hmm. where, as we continue with our summary, she basically... We get some shots where she's kind of, like, looking at her arm and kind of where in these places that are very common for people to self-harm we're starting to see like little dots of green little dots of growth and she says i don't want to face it or fight it but it's hinted that she's wants to become it yeah and she starts walking off into this like little grove like area a lot more of the growth away from the houses that they had been occupying and more of this growth is coming out on her and then Lena chases after her and she's disappeared like where she should be she's just no longer and there's just these flowering humans so whether she had actually turned into one or she had just become one with this shimmer so this is what I mean and that she takes no shit in her own way like she has decided that she doesn't want to follow the paths that her companions have she doesn't want to see herself torn into violence whether that's by the bear or by fighting this thing and she doesn't really have an interest in facing it and she doesn't need to know the answer she just knows whether she's you know seduced by the shimmer so to speak or just tired she decides to just let it overtake her and that's a very powerful choice that i think is very subtle because you know we're, we're quickly moving on from it but i think in terms of thinking existentially her death so to speak quote unquote is the scariest for me because imagine going into this space and losing yourself to it really just not dying as human becoming this thing yeah assimilating into it when you don't even know what it is yeah it's it's really interesting and I, i think that tessa thompson does a really spectacular job of kind of conveying this she has a real aura of peace in this moment that mm-hmm. lends credence to what she's saying and you're like i'm not gonna play this game I, yeah i'm gonna shoot, make my own decision the next time we come to lena in this place she's like crying hysterically and i think that's a a shock for the audience again you know again masterful ways of creating audience reactions because i'm a, asking the question, you know, I'm caught up in how peaceful Josie was by making this decision, even if I'm, as an audience member, like, not pleased with it, <laughs> because I'm like, oh, God, we just lost somebody else. Right. You know, uh, Natalie Portman, make sure that you understand that this is heartbreaking for her, and you're just, like, shocked back to, oh, my God, yeah, wait, Josie did just die. Yeah. We have lost three out of the five members now. <laughs> yeah, and that that jump is really interesting, because this is the first time that we get one of these kind of transition segments where it has, like, the label, but it doesn't immediately open up on that space. This is the mm. first time that that happens. It cuts to black, and it says the lighthouse, but then it opens on a flashback of Kane and Lena just reading, and then it cuts again, and it's her sobbing. Yeah. And then looking confused, and now she has the tattoo at this point, mm. and... This confusion makes it feel like it's another time jump where it's like she doesn't necessarily know how she advanced to this place. She's by the lighthouse now. She finds the coast and she's taken aback by the fact that she's now here. The coastline is dotted with trees made of like crystal or ice or diamond or something. It's really beautiful, but it's very 
unnatural feeling in terms of like trees are they're such they're brimming with such life and then having the kind of like sterile rock look of right. these new trees is really interesting to me she heads to the lighthouse which is also on this coast and it's covered and it looks like it's infected mm. by the fungus that we've seen a couple times right. through it and laid out neatly in front of it are <laughs> several skeletons organized by area of body right which i have to say if you're going to stumble upon a mass grave <laughs> this is the way to have a mass grave is right. to just make it very neat and organized <laughs> So Props as, to the Shimmer janitor. Yeah, it's <laughs> as good of a mass grave as she could have stumbled across, I'd say. And she enters the lighthouse, and she finds a weird-looking hole in the ground, and more bones, including one sitting with its legs crossed, and it was like the site of an explosion, mm-hmm. with the video camera pointing at it. And the video is of things we've seen so far, the hole, the lighthouse, the bones, but then it turns and shows that it's Kane right. who's holding the camera. And we just see, like, a pulsing ball of light, and then a non-proportional humanoid, and then Kane sitting down and giving a really interesting speech. Mm-hmm. This speech is, first of all, it's done in a very heavy southern accent. Yeah. Which Kane does not have hitherto this point. Right. <laughs> and he talks about identity and n- knowing who you are and when you lose your sense of self does that change who you are and are you still the same person if you don't have that connection to yourself anymore he says if you ever get out of here find lena and we hear someone say i will and it's the voice of kane it's the regular kane voice (laughs) and so you're just like what the hell is happening right it's crazy the seated kane uses like a phosphorus grenade right there which is really intense and then a second cane, the one behind the camera, just, like, walks into frame and looks at the camera. Very creepy to see mm-hmm. this kind of, again, the echo, this repetition, the two canes, even though one is different, has a southern accent. That refraction, you and I were talking about this earlier where you didn't notice that one of the guys in the in his troop is supposed to have a southern accent. And so it's right. that refraction of... The way that Lena gets the tattoo, he winds up with this other guy's voice. And mm-hmm. I think that the what it's trying to say is that, spoiler alert for about ten minutes later in this discussion, there's kind of this alien humanoid shape that reflects the person that it sees. Right. I wonder if the person behind the camera is like the alien version of Kane reflecting his original voice and then he got refracted into the, like to having the southern voice but this kind of plays into his question about identity where it's like well if yeah. it's reflecting Kane and that's the one that has his original voice is that Kane now like is yeah. that closer to Kane than Kane actually is now which just kind of raises a couple interesting questions about identity and the way that you associate yourself with yourself Yeah. One of the things that is so unsettling about this conversation, especially towards the end, is the casual atmosphere of it. Mm. Because as we're going to describe, we see this this situation happen again, and it's not so casual. So it's like, what was the relationship between, quote unquote, the real Kane 
and this copy of himself like how yeah. long were they together under what degree did they interact what drove Kane to this you know he has this like philosophical speech but really what's driving Kane to commit suicide yeah especially on uh, recording. That's a lot to sit with as we go into the these next scenes. Lena's obviously horrified by this. Mm. She just saw her husband kill himself and then also appear from behind the camera right. immediately afterward. And also learn that the man who returned to her that she thought was her husband maybe isn't, or almost, you know, it's that, it's again, you're, we're coming with a lot of questions like, definitely isn't her husband, <laughs> yeah. but wait, maybe is? Yeah. Like, how, how do we tell the difference? It's It's confusing for her as it is for us and she hears a voice from inside the hole that Mm. we saw earlier and she enters and it looks a lot like the planet from alien which i like and she finds ventress kind of babbling to herself yeah she's completely unhinged now at this point and she says whatever was in the lighthouse is inside her now and it's unlike us but she doesn't know what it wants but it will continue to expand fragmenting our minds until only the smallest parts remain annihilation she said the name yeah (laughs) it's really interesting to see what was probably the most composed person Mm -hmm. now basically shattered her psyche has been kind of shattered by whatever she's found here she's right we've seen that whatever is in the shimmer is inside them based on just looking at lena's blood but it's really inside of ventress because she vomits she like projectile vomits up light it kind of like coalesces around her and it's really crazy, but it's absolutely beautiful. It's right. like a, this multitude of colors that consumes and dissolves her, and it's crazy, but it's yeah. gorgeous. Like, and that, which is like just such a theme with this movie. Like, y- you cannot stop looking at these absolute horrors. You're absolutely appreciating the visual stimuli of it until you remember, like, oh, this is actually a person dying. Like, this is the demise of a person on a level that we can't even comprehend. We don't even really know what is happening to her. We can just tell based off her body posture and the way she literally disappears that she is dying. Yeah, and meanwhile, it literally looks like the inside of, like, a kid's toy prism. This discussion of the way that it refracts everything clearly extends into the light inside of this and it's refracting perspectives and everything and it's really gorgeous lena is entranced as well as this light forms in front of her and a drop of blood pools in the corner of her eye Mm -hmm. and then flies into the light and it divides over and over again and it takes the form of basically the T-1000 from T-2. But it's, like, kind of wrinkly also. It's, it's mm-hmm. It looks funny. I, I like it a lot. It's a fun design. When I look at it, I think of melted magnets. Mm-hmm. Like that half-solid, half-liquid texture, except it's coalesced into, like, a vaguely humanoid shape. And Lena is super freaked out at this point. She tries to light it up with her gun and the bullets do nothing except add some cool flair to this metal thing and so lena is like all right i'm out of here (laughs) she flees but she emerges from the hole and finds that it's already there it's it's in this new room very cool i thought that was a really fun touch that they use and it reflects her movements it's very eerie and the score here the score is good throughout the entire thing like you said it's pretty sparse but there's a lot of weird like pulsing yeah score and it's very effective i thought right i was reading that the composers they're saying you know this is the only time we use synthetics in an obvious way Mm -hmm. and it's 
such a good decision because as much as we're confused up until this point, what we're dealing with, we're familiar with. You know, it's nature. Um, even if that nature is being twisted, is dreamlike, you know, to a certain extent, we can comprehend it. Right. This is where we're facing the incomprehensible thing. The only other time we've really gotten a hint to what this was is when we saw the comet coming from outer space. Like, this is the big question that we've been trying to find answers for. And while we're being bombarded with this imagery, these sounds are just, like, such an assault on the senses. Like, it is the most nerve-wracking. It's a lot of... I'm going to be weird. It's like, we're making the sound now. Oh, yeah. But, like, it, you're not just hearing it. You're, like, feeling those movements in your body. It's the most, how can we really, like, drive home this unsettling feeling that has been, like, bubbling underneath the surface for most of this movie and just slap it at you in this, like, these culminating moments. Definitely. And... This score is going on over, quote-unquote, a fight, but it's really beautiful in in its own way and kind of elegant, and it's referred to, actually, as the dance. Like, this Mm -hmm. is, like, the dance scene. I think that that's a really apt description of it, because there's this synchronicity that's kind of permeated throughout the whole movie that is very much a huge part of this scene. It's directly reflecting Lena. It seems like it's only attacking, really, because... Lena is also attacking. This is kind of right. mentioned later as well, but her first instinct was fight. Right. You know, there's a bunch of discussion about fight or flight throughout this entire movie, and not necessarily always in that terms, although it did does come up, I think, once or twice, but even just the way that Josie is like, oh, I don't want to fight or face it, you mm-hmm. know? I think that Lena's fight or flight instinct leans pretty heavily towards fight. When the alligator attacks she immediately drops down into a military shooting position and starts firing at it. She immediately jumps into the water when Josie gets pulled in. Yeah. She's she's a fighter. She was in the military for a long time. Right. And they have this fight, but Lena is pretty much losing. (laughs) Like, she gets pressed up against a door, like, getting, like, smothered, basically. It's, like, like crushing her chest, and she passes out, and they both collapse in kind of a mirror image. And this happens again, this awakening and fight. But Lena has the idea to manipulate it into using another phosphorus grenade. Right. And, and as she... Before we go there, I think one of the things, too, like, I never get the hint from this creature that they want to fight. I get the feeling that they want to prevent Lena from leaving. Yeah. Which is going back to what I was mentioning earlier with what was that relationship between Kane 1 and Kane 2 because did it become like this what's the syndrome with the Stockholm thank you did it become like the Stockholm syndrome where Kane just couldn't leave and became friends with the guy and then realized his only way out was the phosphorus grenade so it's again just so many questions like how, how did you get from something that was you know, quote-unquote, attacking Lena, but really just, it felt like trying to keep her from leaving with using violence as a measure to do so to that relationship that the Canes had. And I think as we get into how Lena beats her double, we can have those questions in the back of our mind, uh, too. Like, what would that have been if Lena didn't get out the way she did? Yeah, you mentioned that 
it's her double. So up to this point, it had just been reflecting her movements, but mm -hmm. as Lena decides that she's going to manipulate it into using the phosphorus grenade, it actually takes on her image as well. Right. In some really gross body horror here, yeah. it's really nasty as it becomes Lena. Her face as it takes on the features, it's just really nasty. And Lena does, she puts the grenade in its hand, and she pulls the pin, and she runs away. And it explodes, but the thing just sort of stands there on fire. Like, yeah. it's a flame, but it seems kind of unperturbed. It almost doesn't really understand what's happening. Right. As it's in this lighthouse on fire, it seems like it is in pain. It staggers around a little bit. Mm -hmm. And... As it staggers, it hits some of the mold that's kind of infected this lighthouse. Yeah. One of the things I noticed here is that I think she actually, this on-fire version of Lena, goes to the body of Cain, what we know as the body of Cain, and touches that, and then that goes up in flames yeah. and starts crawling up that weird mold. Yeah. So it's one of those things where, you know, at this you can't help but feel it like how far does this refraction go because is she is this double recognizing the body of Cain as somebody she should be caring for even though who knows to what extent she even has thoughts yet you know how how much of Lena is she it really kind of calls back to mind as well the fact that we, we now know that the cane that arrived back is sort of this other cane. Mm -hmm. And he says earlier, he has no memories or anything, but he says, I recognized you. He says that oh, to Lena. yeah. And having that lack of memory, he says, like, if you see Lena, like, you go find her. Like, if you get out, right. go find Lena. And the fact that he, he arrives at their home without knowing what that is, and he mm -hmm. recognizes her, and he has this connection with the original cane. You're right. Like, how far does it go? How much of a reflection, excuse me, or a refraction are they? One thing that I also thought was really interesting is that after this entity lights the mold, which then ignites the entire lighthouse, it actually crawls back down the pit into mm -hmm. kind of the area that it emerged from. And it felt like a child like, yeah. sulking and like going back to its room and right. using that as its like place of comfort. Um, and it felt very human in yeah. a way. Lena does get out of the lighthouse, and as she turns back to look at this thing on fire, she sees all the trees disintegrating. And whatever this thing was, it was in fact the source. It was like whatever the asteroid was, seems to have spawned this thing, and then this is what's creating the shimmer. Because it then it cuts back to present day, her in the quarantine after she sees all the trees collapsing and and the lighthouse is on fire and everything. And she says it was an alien, but she can't describe its form. And it's so bizarre to her that she, like, can't even put it into words, really. Yeah. But what, one thing that she also says is Benedict Wong talks about how it's a destructive force. And she says that she's not sure that that's the case because it wasn't destroying necessarily. It was changing things. Yeah. And there's a lot of how far when you change something, does it, is it still that thing? One of my friends, Chris, from, from the Channel 83 podcast, was telling me about the Houdini's wand kind of analogy where somebody says, you know, oh, I have Houdini's wand here. You know, the core was cracked, so I had to get that replaced. And the dog ate the cap, so I had to get that replaced. And, well, at that point, is it still mm. Houdini's wand? Or right. is it something completely different at this yeah. point? Well, at what point does its identity change? 
she, Lena kind of talks about the fact that this destruction is more of just a shift. It's creating something new. It is an act of creation in a way that is not really reflected in the word destruction, I don't right. think. Uh, and that changing is a much more apt description. She is indelibly changed, not just from... Even if we're like, yes, this is the Lena that went in right. and all that jazz, she's indelibly changed just from the fact that she now has the tattoo on her arm. Yeah. So she'll... And, and you know, the experiences that you have, you know, you're never... You're changed forever just based on every day. Right. The, what you go through. Um, there's a lot of stuff on a surface level, but also the fact that her DNA is changed. And when she destroys the lighthouse, Kane stabilized. Yeah. They said... And there's a really interesting conversation that kind of continues the thread of what I was just talking about, where they talk about, he, he, she says, you aren't Kane, are you? And he says, I don't think so. Are you Lena? And it's like, is she anymore? And right. does it matter? Yeah. They have this connection. They recognize each other. Are either one of them the person that went in? Yeah. Do they... Does that matter at all? I'm curious if you actually, if you think, yeah, tell me what you think. Do you think that this is, do they, are they the same people? How much do you think this change goes in? Do you think that it matters? Yeah, like I hear what you're saying. The answer for me is no. And I think that's why this movie's ending. You know, we talked earlier about how my mom didn't like this movie, whereas I loved it. And her kind of response to why she didn't like it is because, like, we'd never get any answers. And I'm like, and that's why it's so cool. Yeah. We're dealing with these forces all throughout this movie that are just, as much as we try to science them out, and we do have some science to answer as to why some things are happening, at the end, it is this alien force. And the alien force dies in some ways, but is staying in other ways. And we just have to deal with that. Like, the movie ends with this really cool shot of Lena and Kane, as they are now, hug each other. And first we go and we have this view of Kane, and his eyes are, like, shimmering with gold beyond their natural eye color. And it's like, okay, we know Kane is not himself anymore. We saw the real Kane kill himself but then it switches to lena and she has that same golden eye color and we're like okay we know like you said that something has changed on her on a biological yeah. level as well the shimmer is in them the same way that ventress is in the shimmer and right. Cass is in the shimmer and all that it's it's, it's a two-way street right and it changed they changed it and it changed them right so i like that there aren't answers my education background is in film but I decided not to go into film because I was so much more interested what I realized was the love of film and the fan response to film but not the creation of it in mm -hmm. the end and I love that this spawns hours and hours of YouTube videos of people just convinced that <laughs> they've got this movie figured out but each one of them is ha has a totally different interpretation right and I think that's where the beauty of this film's potential impact is, but also, like, I could never create theories myself because that, for me, loses the point. Like I, like I said, I left that theater more scared than I've ever been. Like, this was the first time I had to, like, actually sleep with the lights on. Wow. Because 
it's not a fear based off jump scares. It's not where it's like you have your fear response, you're good, we move on from it. It is this constant oppressive feeling that this is totally possible. Like, you know, we we don't know about yeah. uh, outer space. We don't know what exists beyond our understanding. Like, as much as we science out a lot of space and we have a lot of understanding, we try to create theories about where life could be in this wide solar system. If something came at us, we would have no idea. We can't even subsist as humans with different cultures without war and conflicts and attempts at laws just to keep each other in check. So if we have to face an alien threat, like we've been given a taste of with this movie of how helpless we could be and how changed we would be. Yeah. I think that a lot of it also has to do, yes, that that external threat, but also there's a lot of, terror that comes from this movie I think from the just the existential questions that it raises about change and what that does right. to you and the types of conflict are person versus nature, person mm-hmm. versus other and person versus self and I think that person versus self can be some of the most effective horror because it's the most easy to relate to I think Yeah. Um, I truly hope that at some point I get to talk about the movie Solaris on this podcast but if I don't, basically the reason that this that movie scares me is because it's a sci-fi movie where, similar to the kind of echoes that take place in this, the planet that they're examining creates these like recreations of people who are already dead. And mm. this the person who's sent there to create a psychological examination of the people on the space station starts to question his own sanity himself, and he starts it creates kind of a replica of his wife and he starts falling in love with it again mm. but it's it doesn't have all the memories and he's a different person than the person that he was when he fell in love right. and basically the moral of solaris is how can you love anyone you idiot you can't even know them yeah. all you can know is the act that they put on and that terror of like oh my god they're like you're right all you have is your impression of people and you can't ever truly know what's inside them. And so how can you love them if you can't really look inside at their actual motivations and everything? That kind of thing that shakes you at your core and makes you question everything you know is the same kind of thing that's found, I think, in this movie. And that's why I think it's part of why it's so effective. Your mom is not the only one who doesn't like this ending. David (laughs) Ellison, who was a financier at Paramount, was really concerned that the film was quote-unquote too intellectual uh, and too complicated, and he demanded changes to make it appeal to a wider audience, including making Portman's character more sympathetic and changing the ending. But producer Scott Rudin sided with Alex Garland in, in his desire not to alter the film. Um, And Scott Rudin had final cut. But because of this argument, a deal was struck with Netflix to handle international Mm -hmm. distribution rather than releasing the film in theaters. And I think that that sucks. Because this movie... Needs to be seen in theaters. Man, it's so gorgeous with the the colors. I mean, the one thing that we kind of didn't talk about is just the very, very last shot is just these beautiful prismatic colors for the end title screen. That's that's the last thing um, after their eyes pulse. And it's just spectacular like even that last little bit seeing in theaters having the sound design really be such a huge part of it and have it surround you and having Mm -hmm. these big beautiful images up on screen 
is spectacular. I'm so glad I got to see it in theaters, and I'm sad for people outside the U.S. that they didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. Hopefully it kind of comes back into theaters in a way that some of these movies do. So we've gone through this movie. We've talked a lot about what shakes us about it, and you've talked about how it's possible for someone who's not really into horror to still enjoy it and, and to find this the best horror movie of all time. So I'm curious for you to kind of put a nail in the coffin and be like, this is why this is the best horror movie ever made. Because it's true that you have a little bit of a limited pool, but I think that that kind of strengthens the argument of mm -hmm. this is accessible in a way that maybe some of the more directly scary right. uh, in other ways kind of movies are not. So I think it comes down to just summarizing some of the broader points we've talked about, but the fact that it's like an existential dread type fear that crafted into everything from the acting to the cinematography to the music. Like every single part um, of the crafting of this movie is focused on creating that existential dread and ramping it up over time. One of the things I was thinking about while watching this movie is that truly, like, I think that we we start with the first unsettling thing really being that Oscar Isaac comes home, that Kane comes home, and he's not reacting as a husband coming back from a year of being MIA should. And then we go to an alligator that is a very aggressive alligator. But alligators are already pretty scary in general. Um, and we just like slowly ramp up the level of scare that these different obstacles bring. And that's just another way that is just filling you with so much dread that by the time we hit that scene with the alien, we're just out of our minds like tense yeah and while that scene is like beautiful and it's perfectly choreographed it is the most unsettling thing we could be shown at this moment to the effect that we're still even while we're after that like given a lot of moments that should be like a calm down like it should be that Kane and Lena are having their reuniting moment it's kind of that thing we wanted it's still unsettling yeah and then again just I think environmental horror is not played with nearly enough. I think this is an excellent film to show the extent of what we can do with environmental horror because, you know, at the end of the day, was the shimmer a bad thing? It was creating beautiful lives. Thousands, thousands, thousands of new species. The system itself seemed to work so well on its own you know, we're kind of shown that humans stepping into this world are the problem, are the destructive force. As we look to how the climate is changing our world and how that is human-made, controversial opinion, I know. Um, Not on this show. <laughs> but how it's human-made, like, we're accelerating how quickly and how destructive the climate is. And we scientists are saying we're going to reach a point if we don't stop or maybe we've already reached that point where humans aren't going to be able to live anymore. Yeah, and then and it's irreversible at some point as well. Exactly. And I have no doubt that life is going to come after that, but it might not take any form that looks like us. And 
is that a bad thing? If we're the ones who created that world, do we deserve to, to say, live in yeah, it? Who's to say that it's uh, a bad thing? Yeah, so I think the Shimmer acts as a literal bubble of seeing into that future. Like, you know, there's... Nature on its own. And what, what exactly. it would be like without humanity there to put a damper on it and curtail it. Exactly. So, so yeah, that's why I think it's the best horror movie made because it's a horror that sticks with you not just for how it frightened you in the moment but in the implications of its messaging and the implication of how it could be in some ways a very real possible future for sure i agree i think this is the best horror movie ever made because not only does it have a lot of great scares like you said i think that first of all it's really elevated by its performances i think Mm -hmm. that everyone does a really spectacular job in it even people who have small roles like oscar isaac i think he does a really good job with what he's given I also really love the, just the way this movie looks. It was part of the reason why I liked Midsummer a lot as well, but horror movies just a lot of the time are so dark and dour and shadows everywhere because yeah. a lot of time that's how you hide things, especially for like creature features and stuff where you might need to cover up some shoddy effects or something. You use shadows a lot to your benefit. But there's something to be said about these horror movies that are coming out in more modern era that are not afraid to show the horror, I think. That Midsummer is full of these bright pastel colors and that Annihilation has just some of the most beautiful greenery I've ever seen. I don't know how much of it was just actual shooting and how much of it is, like, CGI uh, filling it in, but it's absolutely gorgeous and it's bright. A lot of this happens in the day and, you know, you're supposed to feel safe. Daytime is supposed to be the safe time. Mm -hmm. And... You know, there's there are issues at night, like the bear, but at, on some level, just being in there is working on them, and it's toxic being in there, at least toxic for who they were. So it has a lot of kind of existential implications. It has some really great performances. It has some great scares and scenes that really just stick with you, like you said. That bear mm-hmm. scene is just incredible. I yeah. think it is spectacular. I would put it up there with probably some of the, one of the like most shocking and scary things I'd ever seen at that time, especially the first time I saw it. Like, hearing the, the scream of Cassie, yeah. and then it's this bear attacking them. Absolutely wild. But I digress. <laughs> I, we already talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, a, it's just great. It's a great horror movie. I love it. I think that it helped to s- s- kind of solidify Alex Garland as... A person to be taken seriously yeah. as a director as well because you know ex machina was incredible but it could have been a fluke yeah could have been a one-hit wonder yeah but he he came out strong i think that this is even better than ex machina mm-hmm. it has more horror elements in it yeah and still maintains that kind of societal message and questioning what's going on so that's why i think it's the best horror movie ever made sloan this was incredible i had a great time talking about a wonderful movie with you i want to thank you for coming on oh of course uh and i want to give you an opportunity to plug social media accounts or anything if you have any projects going on you also feel free to just shout out something that you like if you don't have anything that you want to necessarily promote if you want to follow me on twitter you can do that at sloan s-l-o-a-n-e underscore zone z-o-n-e I talk about my life and video games uh, occasionally. Uh, I don't really have any projects, but something I like, speaking of video games, I think video games are doing a lot 
more of this environmental horror, so to speak, work that we're talking about, because environments are so important to the creation of video games. So play some environmental-based video games. Two of my favorites, one of my favorite all-time games, I know you don't like it completely, George, but Flower by that game yeah. company. <laughs> You know, it's not I my think, bag. I get why people <laughs> like it, but it's not for me. I understand, but it has a lot of great commentary on understanding the environment and understanding how humans' impact on the environment is a dangerous thing, and it kind of does the answering of that question we were asking before: Are humans the bad guys? Great. Um, and then also a n- newer one is. Outer Wilds, uh, that is also two just great examples. Uh, they're more indie games, too, so that's always support more indie games. Yeah, uh, great. Definitely give those a play, everyone out there. Yeah. Um, as far as me, you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. You can find the show on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. And you can, I mean, we're on Facebook now, we're on Instagram now. You can find us on there. Uh, follow along on Letterboxd at George Hef. We're on all major platforms now, and Woo! we would love uh, some ratings and reviews from people out there. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend it to a friend. Yeah, that's that's it for me, I think. So, again, thanks for coming on, Sloan. This was great. And definitely, people out there, this is a really beautiful movie. I yeah. really think that you should give it a shot if you haven't seen it. I know that sometimes people are like, Oh, some of the older stuff might be a little corny, and he, they might be playing it up. But this is—it's a—it's a modern movie. It's 2018. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely spectacular. I really recommend that you all give it a watch. So, yeah, great. Thanks for coming and listening, everyone. Bye.